Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law murmured, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger one got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. <clears throat> so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here am I starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you 
and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Familiar passage? Most of you would have heard that before, I imagine. Uh, we're going to unpack this uh, from uh, under four headings. So if you're taking notes and you haven't uh, accessed the church hub or printed out the service sheet, there's your four passages, uh, four, four headings. The danger of familiarity, setting the pattern, breaking the pattern, uh, and questions remain. So that's where we're heading. Uh, let me tell you, we're going to spend much more time under the third heading there. So we're going to move fairly quickly. Uh, and the last one, so don't panic if you look at the time, the last one uh, is only just a little one. Okay. Can I just say, this is probably, they think, uh, the best known of Jesus's parables. If not the best, it's the second best up there with the Good Samaritan. Uh, but can I say, it is also probably one of the most misunderstood parables of Jesus. The story of the prodigal coming home is close to, I think, our culture's heart. We like the idea of the rebel being reconciled. It connects with our culture's deepest longings, and it's a beautiful story. Now, some of you might be old enough and you might remember uh, a Christian artist by the name of Keith Green. Does anyone remember Keith Green? He had a fantastic song called The Prodigal Son Suite. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing song to listen to, but I'd like to argue this morning somewhat unhelpful. Is it accurate to the text? Well, it's accurate to part of the text. Because when we focus in on the prodigal son, we focus in on just one part of this amazing canvas. It's like walking into the art gallery and seeing one of those pictures that spans the entire wall and just walking up and examining one corner of the picture. It's there in its glory before you, but we focus in on this one really compelling, yes, uh, wonderful story, but we lose, we lose, first of all, the true target. Let me read to you from verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is the context of the parable. The sinners and the tax collectors are coming in and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those religious types, they're grumbling about it. This is why Jesus even tells the story in the first place. But not only do we miss the target, we miss, perhaps, the whole story. Look at verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Singular. Not these parables. Plural. Why does this matter? Because this is one story. 
It has three parts to it, but it's one parable. It's not three parables or four parables. It's one parable. And we need to read them all together to see the point that Jesus is making. If you've got a Bible like mine, you've got really unhelpful headings that were not there in the original text, like parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son. Um, draw a line through them. They're not there. And they give us the sense that these are three parables. No, it's one parable. And we need to read it together. But there's a bigger issue. Because it's so familiar, and this parable is part of our culture, we talk about the prodigal son. There's even a, a Netflix series, I think, called The Prodigal Son about this kind of idea. We think we actually understand what it's about. We think, oh, I know what this is. I've got this. But we miss a lot of implicit cultural knowledge. There's a lot of stuff that the original audience wouldn't have needed explained. Now, let me give you an illustration that maybe works here in Adelaide. So if I'm, if I'm telling a joke, okay, uh, I know I don't do this very well, so I don't do it very often. Uh, that was a joke just then, okay, see, it doesn't work. But, I, but I'm talking about some football teams, and I'm talking about um, Collingwood, okay. I'm talking about Collingwood to a congregation in Adelaide, we all know, I don't need to explain that I'm talking about the worst of the worst, aren't I? I'm talking about the lowest of the low. Uh, no one likes these people, okay? And sorry if you're a Collingwood fan here this morning, um, you can just leave. Um, um, but, but there's that kind of thing where it's just a cultural norm. Here in Adelaide, we don't like, well, does anyone like Collingwood, really, except for Collingwood? Uh, we just don't like them. We don't like them. It's like the people who say, you know, you remember those T-shirts? I support South Africa and anyone playing Australia. Uh, the South Africans amongst us might appreciate that one. You know, Australia for the South Africans, I understand, was, you know, somewhat of a bugbear. That's why so many of you live here now. That's uh, interesting. Anyway, um, it's like if I'm talking about driving, you're talking, you immediately you have someone sitting in a car behind a wheel and they're on the left-hand side of the road, and it's a black road with white light, you have an image of what that is. I don't need to tell you that it's in a car and not in a horse and cart. I don't even need to tell you in Australia which side of the road it is. We just have that image. It's just implicit cultural knowledge. And this kind of knowledge is saturated through these stories. There are things that you wouldn't have had to explain to the first hearers of this parable. So having given you that caution, let's proceed with caution. Setting the pattern. Let's look at these two uh, introductory stories just briefly. Okay, they're familiar stories. They're designed to draw you in. They're designed that you, if you were listening to them, you'd go, of course you'd do this. This is just the way that you do things. So there's a story about a shepherd, okay, and there's a lost sheep, okay, and then he searches and he finds it and he celebrates. You see the pattern? And then there's another story that Helen did for us, or, or Pirate Gertie. Uh, there's, there's a woman. She's got ten coins. She loses one. She searches. 
she finds, she celebrates. You see the pattern that Jesus is setting up here. There's something that's lost. There's a search, a discovery, and a celebration. And it's the same pattern in the first two. Hold that in mind. Jesus is telling this story and he's showing that the father's heart and his heart is for the lost. That, of course, you'd go and find the sheep. Of course, you'd search for the coin. Of course, you should let the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors come in. But you could imagine at this point, those religious types wanting to butt in. Jesus is telling this story and he's almost backed them into a corner because it's obvious that the shepherd should search for the sheep. It's obvious that the woman should search for the coin. So Jesus is then saying it's obvious that he should search for the sinners and the tax collectors. But you could imagine them. Jesus, you don't understand. Jesus, these, these are not just lost. You don't see how bad they are. You don't see how sinful they are. They deserve to be lost. They don't deserve to be in here. They should be cast out. You shouldn't accept them. But these are the only first two stories. And Jesus is on a roll and he dives straight in to the third story. Now, verse 11, Jesus continues. There was a man who had two sons. Now, he's introduced us to each of the main characters. I don't know if you've spotted it. So in the first one, the role of Jesus or God is played by the shepherd. In the second story, it's the woman. In the third story here, it's the father. The sinners, obviously the lost sheep, the lost coin, the younger son. But the Pharisees, the religious types, the righteous ones, they're there too. The 99 sheep, the nine coins, the older son. We're going to talk more about them next week. But Jesus introduces a story. There was a man who had two sons, and there's your three characters. But in this story, Jesus breaks the mold. Jesus varies the pattern. He set it up where you expect there to be Someone, something lost, a search, found, celebrate. But in this one, if you read it carefully, there's a few things, one thing in particular, missing. And Jesus is trying to open their eyes and our eyes to see something differently. He's trying to get us to see sin and repentance differently. He's trying to redefine them for us. So firstly, let's look at sin. Look at verse 12. The young one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, I don't know if anyone has tried this. Uh, in our culture, this would be a little bit rude, wouldn't it? Okay, dad, mom, give, give me my share now. Okay. In the first century, when Jesus told this story, there would have been probably audible gasps. And even now, if you go into the Middle East and asked someone how they would react if this happened, it wouldn't happen. And if it did happen, 
Well, the son would be cast out. The son would be excluded. Because effectively the son is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. That That is the force of what the son is saying. So Jesus here is casting sin in a different light. Sin is not breaking rules. Sin is breaking relationships. The Pharisees saw honouring God as keeping a whole list of rules. They had numbers of them. They knew exactly how many there were meant to be and they knew exactly how to keep them. But Jesus here doesn't define sin in terms of breaking those rules and righteousness in terms of keeping those rules. He defines sin in terms of a broken relationship between the son and the father. The son doesn't want a relationship with his father. He wants the money. He doesn't want his dad. So the sin in this parable is not what he does once he's got the money. The sin is the fact that his relationship with his father has been ruptured. That he has turned and walked away. And we're going to explore this more next week. We're going to focus in on the repentance idea more this week. So he redefines sin as breaking relationship. But he redefines repentance. Let me unpack this for you. You probably know the story. You heard it read by Margaret if you hadn't. The guy goes away. He liquidates his assets because in those days, most wealth would be tied up in property, in, uh, in sheep and goats and all those kind of things. It wouldn't have been cash sitting around in the bank. Okay, so he gets his share of the property. He probably sells it uh, at, at, at a cheap price to liquidate it quickly. And then he takes up the money and he goes away to a foreign country where he squanders it. Literally, he scatters his life. That's what the the text actually says. And all of a sudden then, once his resources hit rock bottom, there's a famine, he's in need, he attaches himself to a citizen of the country and this man sends him, this good Jewish boy, to feed the pigs in the field. And while he's there, he wants to actually be a pig because the pods that the pigs were eating were indigestible to people, but he's that desperate that he wants something to eat. He would long to be able to eat those, those pods. In essence, he wants to be a pig, but no one gives him anything. And then you get verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's, my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, I want to ask you, is this repentance? Is this where we see repentance in this parable? I'd like to suggest no. No, it's not. And I'd like to give you two reasons. Firstly, think about how Jesus presented sin. Did he present sin in terms of 
money taken from his father. No. He presented sin in terms of the rupture of relationship between the two. This man in the pig pen, he doesn't see that the issue is primarily his relationship with his father. He sees that it's a debt that he could repay. He wants to go back to his dad and get a leg up to be a tradie and then to pay the debt back somehow. I'm not worthy to be your son. He recognises that. Make me like one of your hired men. Why? So I can pay you back. So maybe after 10, 20, 30 years, I may have actually restored what I took. I don't believe he sees what the issue is. But also, and this is a bit more subtle, but it would have been very obvious to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who knew the Old Testament backwards. What he says when he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, it mirrors an Old Testament story. It takes us back to the book of Exodus and Exodus chapter 10, where the plagues are coming. Moses is God's hand of judgment upon Egypt. And he's sending plague after plague after plague. And there's a plague of locusts that come upon the land. You can read about it in Exodus 10. And what does Pharaoh say to Moses at this point? Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Do you see the parallel there? Now forgive my sin once more. Pray to the Lord your God to take away this deadly plague away from me. Was Pharaoh repentant? Well, if you know the story, no, of course he wasn't. He's trying to manipulate God. He's trying to manipulate Moses to make the locusts go away. And as soon as they do, he's back oppressing Israel again. I think this is behind it as well. Jesus is crafting this story in a way that actually shows that what the Pharisees would have seen as repentance, and maybe what many of us do, is not really repentance at all. What the Pharisees would have seen, you've got to have remorse. You've got to have payback. Jesus is saying, no, that is not repentance. It may be part of the deal, but it's not at the heart. And so the son goes home and he's practicing his line. You can imagine him on the way, just rehearsing this line. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy. He's there and he comes back, but he's confronted. He's confronted not by his father's anger, but by his father's grace. And that changes everything. He's walking into the village, the village who would reject him because he had done something so shameful. He had dishonoured his family to such a degree that the village would have rejected him out of hand. There was no way back. He's coming to the village, but his father sees him. And his father does what no dignified elder would ever do. He runs to his son. He runs and he throws his arms around him. Literally, he fell upon his neck, kissing his neck. This 
open display of affection and restoration. In front of the community, the father is restoring the son. He, in essence, is saying to the community, I have accepted him, and so you must accept him. He publicly embraces him, and within the family, he says, quick, to the servants, go and serve my son, because he's part of the family, and you are servants of my family. He restores him within the family, and he gives him the sign of authority. The best robe. Now, whose whose robe was that? That was the father's robe. Bring the ring for his finger. What's the ring? Is it just an ornament? Probably not. It's probably the signet ring that would allow the son to act in business on behalf of the father, on behalf of the family. He's restored him in front of the servants, in front of the community and within the family. He communicates to everyone that by his grace, relationship has been restored. And I think this is where we see repentance. This is where the son repents. Not back in the pig pen. Not with his recitation of his, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Yes, recognition of sin is an issue. But it is here. Because he doesn't doesn't cry out to his father and say, make me like one of your hired men. That stops. He doesn't say that. He realises just how wrong that would be. Repentance is not just remorse. Repentance is not an attempt to pay it back. I'd like to suggest that Jesus defines repentance here as an acceptance of being found. The son rests in his father's embrace. He doesn't try to appeal. He doesn't try to make it up. He rests in his father's embrace. He recognises that he was lost and is now found. He recognised that he was dead and is now alive. He recognises that he brings nothing, that he offers nothing but shame and desperate need. He accepts grace. Repentance is acceptance of being found. It's resting in the Father's arms. How do you see it? When someone talks to you of repentance... How do you see it? Sometimes we can think of repentance as this admission of wrong and sometimes we'll do a prayer of confession and maybe we associate that's what repentance is. Jesus says, no, there's a deeper issue here. It's not just remorse. Pharaoh showed us remorse. Remorse can sometimes be just take away the pain. I don't like the consequences of my actions. Make it go away. Sometimes repentance, and some church traditions, I think, unfortunately teach this, it's like you can make it up to God. You can make things right. You can earn it. And sometimes when there is sin and is involving 
people, restitution should be made. But Jesus is saying that is not what is at the heart of repentance. At the heart of repentance is that acknowledgement that we were lost and by his grace we have been found. It's coming back to the Father and resting in his love. So what does repentance look like? It's something that happens in us in response to God's grace to us. And it should humble us. It should make us see just how lost we were. Just how, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, how dead in our sins and transgressions we were. I was converted at 13 and I was a bit of a dork at school. Uh, I was converted in early high school. I didn't even have a time to live a wild life, Um, you know. Uh, I used to play in the chess club at school. Anyone else do the chess club at school, you know? I was one of those real rebel guys. Um, I don't look back on my life and go, wow, what depravity, (laughs) what rank sin. My sin, though, was just as real as this younger son. My sin was just as real as someone who has lived in outright rebellion, fist-shaking rage, rejecting God, I just ignored him. I just ignored him. And repentance for me is recognising that that ignoring God was just as bad as an outright conscious rejection of God and that I was just as lost and by his grace I have been found. Grace exposes our absolute spiritual poverty. We sing it, you know, the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Do you have a sense of naked, empty, helpless? Karen and I, um, we have a childish habit Whenever we sing Amazing Grace, you know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved. Come on, congregation, are you alive? A wretch like, and (laughs) we used to always just nudge a wretch like you. But what repentance looks like is that when we sing that, we say, Amen. It is a wretch like me, a naked, poor empty wretch who by the grace of the father is once again restored to relationship and inheritance in his family jesus redefines repentance not as trying to make it up not as trying to beat yourself up but as rejoicing and resting in god's grace what do we see when we look at the cross Do we see the Son of God bearing our shame, bearing our punishment, clearing our debt 
removing our offence, do we see in the Son's arms stretched wide the embrace of the Father? That is what initiates repentance. And our repentance as we come, we say it was for us that he did this. Praise be to God. I'm going to move to our last thing. Questions still remain. This is a massive passage and I've just scratched the surface. I introduced by asking questions about forgiveness and reconciliation and uh, restoration of relationship and I've not dealt with any of that. You're going to have to come back next week, sorry. Uh, okay. But also if you've been looking at the questions, looking at the parable you'll actually see that there are still really big questions. What about the older brother? What about him? If you looked at the pattern, what did you see? Shepherd, lost sheep, search, found, celebrate. Woman, lost coin, search, found, celebrate. Father, lost son. Where's the search? Why has Jesus broken this pattern here? Well, to answer that, you need to understand the ultimate meaning of this parable. And to get that, you've got to come back next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have this beautiful picture, this picture of your heart longing to see the lost found. And in Christ, Father, you ran to us. You lavished your love upon us. You give us by your grace something that we deserve nothing of. You give us belonging in your family. Father, we do pray that your grace would humble us and that our hearts would truly rest in the love that you have for us in Christ. That we might know that peace of coming home and Father, we ask that as we think about this and reflect upon this and meditate upon this this week, Lord, that you would show us just how amazing that grace is. That you would bring us to a deeper understanding of what it is you've done for us. And that we might truly rest and rejoice in what you've done for us in Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.